good morning. You may have uh, read the book, Life of Pi, or seen the movie. And it's a, a religious tale, it says. It kind of weaves in and out of three religions, Hinduism, Islam, and Christianity. And it's uh, a story of a young man, the son of a zookeeper, and a trip that he takes. And he says that in the end of the book, you should believe in God. That's his, his goal. You can decide on that one. But what I want to draw is this one, one point in the book where Pi, the main character, says something to a Catholic priest he's talking to. He says this, It makes no sense that a loving God would send his only son, an innocent man, to die for the sins of others. It makes no sense that a loving God would send his only son, an innocent man, to die for the sins of others. And you need to know that objection to the Christian faith is very old. It goes back to the very beginning of uh, the Christian movement. It's caused many to doubt the Bible's message, and oftentimes even for Christians, it makes us wonder about this message that we hold to, because there are many people who have very forcefully presented the argument that the idea of a sinless man dying in the place of other people and God somehow forgiving sins through that is uh, unfair, it's uh, irrational, and it's even immoral. Yet that's precisely what we're here for this morning. We have the elements on the table that Jesus himself commanded us to use, these signs, the bread and the cup that point powerfully to his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. And we're invited this morning to come and rejoice in the fact that what we couldn't do for ourselves, God did for us in the person of uh, Christ. And it's the very thing that we are called to rejoice in that some people are telling us we ought to be uh, ashamed of. What I'd like to do for a few minutes is to show you that what people question actually makes perfect sense. I'm going to call it the logic of the gospel. The logic of the gospel is an explanation of why it makes sense that a sinless man would be sent by God, the Son of God would come to die in the place of other people who are sinners. There was a person in many years ago, hundreds of years ago, I think it was about the 5th century, named Anselm. And Anselm once answered a critic of Christianity who asserted this very thing, that the idea of a, a sinless person substituting himself in the place of sinful people is irrational and, and it's immoral to think about. What Anselm said was, oh, but you don't understand the seriousness of sin. Well, that really, in one sense, is the answer to the whole question. But I want to draw that out a little more by looking back in the garden, the part that uh, Paul just read to us that describes the creation and fall of the human race. And uh, I want to draw from that a number of things, like three premises that you can uh, think through logically. Each one is a part of one whole premise that we'll come to, and it leads to a conclusion. The conclusion is what I want to focus on. But to get to the conclusion, you kind of have to think through what is the logic of why the Bible would say a sinless and perfect human had to die in the place of sinners. And you know what I'd like to think? I'd like to think that when I'm done, some of you, when we turn our attention to the table, would come to it with a greater sense of appreciation, a greater sense of uh, the wonder and mystery 
of the fact that God invites us to come and do this very thing today, sharing these elements together. And it, it is meant to be a significant and meaningful and strengthening act of worship. Now, the only way to understand this is to begin where we began as human beings. We began, we are told, in the garden. And uh, in the garden, God placed the first two humans, Adam and Eve, and uh, they were there unstained by sin, no sin inside of them or in their environment, free to serve God and in fellowship with God. And what we have to do is we have to look behind that a little bit to see a little more deeply what was going on there in the garden when God first put the first two human beings there. Adam and Eve are pictured in the Bible as the source and the representatives of our entire race. Uh, we would say scientifically that uh, their DNA of the first two humans has been passed by natural generation to all of the descendants so that no matter what color we are, no matter what ethnic background, no matter what language we speak, anywhere in the world, all of that is traced to one source, and we are all organically connected to each other coming from these first two humans. They had a relationship with God in the garden. And the Bible later calls that a covenant. The idea is that Adam and Eve in the garden were in a unique kind of relationship with God that theologians call the covenant of works. And I want to explain that because I'm going to use that phrase a few times this morning. The covenant of works. The Bible unfolds the story of God's dealings with human beings through a series of covenants. If you've ever uh, been to a church before when they have communion, someone will say at some point, uh, describing Jesus' words, this is the new covenant in my blood. Well, Jesus was establishing a different covenant than the one that went before him and, and the one that went before that. And and the Bible unfolds it in that way, but it's important because of that to understand what a covenant is. A covenant is a formal kind of relationship between two parties. Now, the fact is God can relate to anyone he wants to in any way that he wants to, I suppose. But when God wants to establish a relationship, he enters or he forms what the Bible would call a covenant. That's a word we've almost lost, but we still even legally call marriage a covenant today. And it is, in fact, in the Bible, marriage is pictured as a covenant, and the covenant between God and human beings is pictured as being similar to that in some way. A covenant might be defined in this way. It is a binding mutual relationship founded on clear requirements and uh, giving blessings for obedience and penalties for disobedience. So it's like it has four parts. It's a, it's a relationship that's formally established between two parties. It has requirements, and where both parties uh, say that they will do certain things, and it has blessings and penalties attached to it. Now, not all covenants have all four of those things fully developed. Some of them are only implied and all of that. But the word covenant isn't used in the first three chapters of the Bible. It doesn't come about till Noah much later, and, and yet... I would say that at this point, God established with the first two humans a covenant that we call the covenant of works. Now, there's two reasons why we're confident that there was a covenant involved in the beginning of the Bible. One is that the Bible later calls it a covenant. You read later in Hosea, much later in the history of Israel, when the prophet Hosea is telling the people of Israel uh, what they have done wrong, it says, like Adam, they have broken the covenant. So it compares the sins of God's people at that point to something that happened 
at the beginning, the inception of the human race, and it was the breaking of a covenant. So we know there was a covenant involved here, but also all the elements of a covenant, the four things that I described, are found in the first two chapters of the Bible. And I'd like to think about those things very briefly. We don't have time to carry that out, but uh, you can note, first of all, that Adam and Eve and God had a relationship. There was a relationship in which they communicated and certain responsibilities were given to Adam by God and certain blessings were passed to him as well as a, a penalty. So there was a relationship and then the requirements of the relationship, things that Adam particularly was to do and it implies things that God would do in the situation with Adam. But mostly Adam is appointed, Adam and Eve, as the representatives of God. They're called the image, God. I said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion. And then when he goes on and fulfills that, he creates the human beings and he says, have dominion over all of the earth. They were appointed to be God's representatives and vice rulers on the earth. They were to do that under God. But that is the primary command given. It's sometimes called the creation mandate. The mandate for humanity on the earth to spread and to spread culture and the life of God. And Adam was commanded to do this, to spread the glory of God throughout this wild, uncultivated earth in which the only cultivated part was Eden and the garden that was in the middle of it in this one place where Adam had been placed. And uh, there were not only requirements, but there were also uh, uh, a negative requirement, we would say. The negative requirement is a prohibition. It's only one, stated in the two chapters, but it says, you may surely eat of all trees of the garden. This is all yours, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. So they were given this one penalty, excuse me, prohibition with an attached penalty. It says, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely, what? Die. You all know that. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And that's the penalty attached to it. So there are all of these things, a relationship, requirements stated, uh, a, a negative requirement given, and blessings attached to all of those, but a penalty for the one prohibition. That is, the day that you eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. So let's state the first point this way. God placed Adam and Adam in the garden in the covenant of works. We could just say, um, Adam represented us in the garden. That's the point the Bible makes and everything that flows out of it. Adam represented us in the garden when he was placed in this relationship with God in the covenant of works. He is the head, the source, the representative of the entire human race there. And he was in this special relationship with God in which God said to him, all of this is yours and you have all of the freedom that you need, but there's one thing you are not to do. And that's sometimes called the probation it was like a test. He was given one thing that he couldn't do, and the question whether he would hold on to the goodness of God and obey the command, or whether he would question the goodness of God, say that God is withholding something from me, important and break it. And it's important to understand that in the covenant of works, this unique relationship at the beginning of the human race, God promised life on the basis of obedience. God promised life on the basis of obedience. You might say, well, wait a minute, how could he do that? That, does, that doesn't sound fair. How could anyone perfectly obey God? How could God demand perfect obedience from a creature? Well, remember this, 
There is no sin at this point. Adam has come from the hand of the Creator, unstained by sin, but with total moral freedom to choose good or evil. He has no inclination towards sin. He has nothing in his environment that is going to draw him to sin. Oh, except this one evil thing that he was called like a priest to cast out of the garden, but instead he listens to it. You see, Adam and Eve, as they came from the hand of the Creator, were unstained by sin. They were created, the New Testament would say, in holiness and true righteousness. They were upright. They had the ability to obey God and apparently had the freedom to choose against God. And in that place of testing, in that probationary period in which their moral freedom from sin would be tested, they had this one prohibition. Everything is yours except this one thing. And what happened is Adam broke the covenant of works. God's offer of life based on perfect obedience, he denied. He turned it away. And the fact is that Eve, deceived by the serpent, took the fruit and ate it. And then it says she gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So Adam was right there. Now, you might, keep, you might wonder, why do you keep saying Adam was the head and the source and Adam is responsible and all of that? Well, I, I don't say it because Eve was not there, like she didn't exist or something. But the reason is that in the Bible, Adam was created first and given the command, and he apparently was to pass it on to his wife. And the whole nature of the discussion that Paul read to us between Eve and the serpent shows her misunderstanding of the original command and Satan's ability to twist her understanding and make her question the goodness of God. So when she takes the fruit, the Bible says she was deceived. She was still responsible, by the way, but she was deceived. But when she gave it to Adam and he took it and ate it, with his eyes wide open, knowing full well the command of God and the prohibition and the penalty that had been stated, he ate it. So Eve is treated sort of like an unindicted co-conspirator. So first, Adam represented us in the garden. And there's a second thing that has to be a part of that. When we say Adam in the garden stood before God in the covenant of works and he was our source and our representative, we all came out of him. The, the second thing is so that the consequences of, his, of Adam's sin were passed on to us. Adam represented us in the garden so that the consequences of his choice are passed on to us as his descendants. When Adam broke the covenant, what happened? Well, interestingly, when you read the passage, you, you're not real clear on exactly what happened because the penalty was, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And we expect something dramatic. We expect it would be as dramatic as, remember Snow White when she took the poisoned apple and she ate it? Immediately she fell into a swoon, a deep swoon that only this uh, great prince could bring her out of. We expect something that dramatic. Death would have to happen immediately. Well, it does, but in fact, the Bible's account of it is not as dramatic outwardly, but it's much more emotional, emotive. When you read it, let me read it to you again. And they heard, this is immediately after the fall, and they heard. Sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? 
The man said, the woman. And then they passed the buck. It wasn't me, it was the woman that you gave, you gave to me. She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the woman, God says, what is this you've done? And the woman says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, what, what's so interesting about that and what happened there is that it describes something that uh, we need to take seriously, and that is it describes, if you let your heart wrap around it, the immediate and complete loss of relationship with God. I mean, here it pictures God coming down at a point in the day where apparently he customarily came to enjoy fellowship with the image that he had created, the man and the woman. And the spirit of the man and the woman were very much alive. So that when God came down, their spirits mingled in, a, in an experience of rich fellowship and enjoyment. And God came down and now something was different. Everything was different. Something inside of Adam that had been very much alive was dead. Was no longer active. And, and, and the words of God become very plaintive. God comes down, and what does he say? Where are you? You know, we would expect God to come down in wrath and that the death that he promised would fall upon them immediately and obviously. But God comes down, he says, where are you? Like a longing heart looking for that enjoyment of fellowship with the image that he has created and Adam says, I hid myself from you. I mean, Adam's the one who withdraws from God. It's not the other way around. Because something inside of him that had once been alive was now dead. And that's why the Apostle Paul, when you come to the New Testament, says this. He says to Christians, describing their former life, before they came to experience something God did in their hearts before that. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. He doesn't say you were sick. He doesn't say you, you were having a hard time and a counselor helped you. He says you were dead. And it's most important to understand that because he's drawing on the very first part of the Bible where the consequence, the penalty for sin was in the day that you eat of it, which is a Hebrew idiom that simply means when you eat of it, when you eat of it, you will surely die. And what happened apparently was that the moment they took the forbidden fruit and they ate of it, in which they broke the one command of God in the covenant of works, that moment they died. They died finally, completely, and with devastating consequences. The penalty, the immediate consequence that fell on the source and representative of our race becomes the personal experience of every descendant of his. And the simple reason is what was no longer alive inside of Adam, the spirit, eternal life, the quality of God's life was now snuffed out. And what they no longer had, they could no longer pass on. So that every human being is born in a state of spiritual deadness that is absent of the life, the eternal life of God. Death is, first of all, in the Bible, spiritual. It's not physical. Physical is just one of the manifestations of spiritual death. But death is the absence of fellowship, relationship with God, the absence of the life of God inside of a person. 
that would give to them this sense of fellowship and communion with God. When that is absent, the person is spiritually dead. All that the Bible says is that physical death is what results, one of the results of spiritual death. And eternal death is just another consequence. That is, if the soul divided from God in this life, that has not changed at the point of physical death. They go on into an eternal separation of the soul from God, which is what the Bible calls hell. But in the Bible's logic, we are born in our natural state and apart from anything we could do in a state of spiritual deadness. So here's what we're saying so far. Adam represented us in the garden. When he broke the covenant of works, his um, consequences of his sin were passed on to us that spiritual death, so that uh, what that means is that now when a person is born in and of ourselves, left to ourselves, we're spiritually dead. I know that's not a very nice thing to think about, but from the perspective of God, we, in our natural state, born in this world, do not have the life of God inside of us. And let me draw that out for just a minute. What does that mean that we are spiritually dead? Well, the Bible underlines it in three different ways. It says that first we are sinful, and then also that we are guilty or accountable to God, and thirdly, that we are lost. First, we're sinful. That's obviously true in that we at least break our conscience. Even people uh, who don't have much interest in God acknowledge that they don't always act according to what they think is right. But the Bible says more than that. It says not only do I violate our conscience, but we actually commit acts of sin that are violations of his law. We hurt people by the words that we say and the things that we do. We think wrong thoughts, and we also commit sinful acts at certain points. But behind sinful actions, which we can all accept and understand and feel responsible for, the Bible says that's because of a deeper problem. We have an inclination to sin. You see, that spiritual deadness passed to us from Adam means that we have an inner inclination as we're born into this world, a bent, we might say, away from God. And all that sinful actions are that begin to come out in childhood, all that those things are, is they are manifestations outwardly of an inward bent away from God. They're just showing up. But, but even deeper than that, it says that the whole reason for that is that Adam represented us in the garden. So we're sinful. We have sinful inclinations. And Adam, uh, making that choice, made us responsible for it because he passed to us his spiritual deadness throughout all generations. And the second thing the Bible says, not only when it says we're dead, it doesn't only mean we're sinful, it means that we're guilty. After all, you could be sinful, but no one holds you accountable, right? People do things all the time that other people say, oh, you know, big deal. In which case, you're not accountable. But the Bible says we're not only sinful, but God holds us accountable for what we've done. Now, to see this, I want you to look in the Bible. Turn to uh, Romans chapter 9. Chapter 3, I'm sorry. Romans chapter 3. If you pick up a Bible around you, it's on page 940. 940. Romans chapter 3. Paul, in the book of Romans, in the first three chapters, lays out a detailed argument about sin. He explains what sin means, where it comes from, how it shows up in the human life, and he's coming to his conclusion when you get to chapter 3 and verse 9. What then, he says, he's going to draw a conclusion. What do we mean by all this that he's already described about sin? He says, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 
Now, you'll note there that he divides humanity into two categories. We wouldn't do this today, but he says Jews and Greeks. And what he means is religious people and irreligious people. People who care about God, know something about God, and people who couldn't care about God, couldn't, couldn't give a rip for him. He divides into two categories. Jews, that was his own cultural and ethnic and religious heritage. He was a Jewish man. Jews, on one hand, are people who had the law. They had the scriptures. They were religious. They went to meetings. They were called to live in a certain way. And Greeks were people who were viewed, at least by Jews, as outside of the covenant that God made with Israel. They were outside. They didn't know the true God. They didn't have a revelation about him. They didn't follow him. He would also say moral and immoral. He's dividing the world into two broad categories. And, and then he says that we've already said, what the whole point is that he's making is that religious people and irreligious people are all in the same condition before God. They are all, he says, under sin. And that means under the authority of or under the domination of sin. That's his, his conclusion. All people born into this world, religious and irreligious, are under the domination of sin. And then skip down uh, past the quotations that he has there to the end. He says, now we know, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now his point is, we are, we are, all under the domination of sin, and as a result, we're accountable. We're guilty before God. He holds us accountable. And then, the conclusion of that is we're lost. Now, the word lost is a word that the Bible uses, and sometimes we use it, but if you want to know what lost means, if you want to put, like, some flesh to that, look at the quotations that I skipped over, verses 10 through 18, what Paul does only as a person who had been raised, singing the Psalms and praying the Psalms every day of his life, he strings together a series of quotations drawn from different places in the Psalm to underline this point of the nature of spiritual death, of accountability to God, of being under the domination of sin, which is true of every human being born into this world. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And if you skip to the end, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now let's take this seriously. In our human state, as we're born into this world, if we're left to ourselves and our own strategies to try to make life work for us, as we make our way through this world, cut off from God and the life of God, we are in a condition, this says, of being completely unable to save ourselves. There is nothing we could do whatsoever to change the condition that we are in. So take this seriously. It says in the book of Ephesians, our desires are degraded so that we will not even want the right things if we're left to ourselves. Our minds are darkened, so that while we still have the ability to reason, we will not reason our way to God and his glory if we're left to ourselves. 
Our choices are always stained by sinful motives and inclinations so that left to ourselves, we will never choose to God. We will never choose God. We will never seek God if God comes to the human person in our natural state and he says, I love you and I desire a relationship with you. The Bible's perspective is that left to ourselves, we say, I hate you. I want nothing to do with you. If God comes to us and says, I want to save you, we say, we can save ourselves. We don't want a God to save us. We don't have to stand on our own. I'm the captain of my fate and so forth. That's the Bible's perspective. When we say that we're lost, we mean we are completely unable to do anything to save ourselves, to help ourselves. So the Bible, based on the garden and what happened in the garden, there's like these, this, this grand premise I want you to think of. Here's what the Bible pictures. It says, first of all, Adam represented us in the garden. And when he broke the covenant of works, when he, he broke God's offer of life based on obedience, then the consequences of his sin, spiritual death, which he experienced immediately, being cut off from relationship with God, losing the life of God inside of him, those consequences that became his are passed through all of his descendants by natural generation so that when we're born today, we are born in a condition of being sinful, guilty, and lost, and completely unable to change our condition. Not only unable, but unwilling. I know it's a dark picture, but did you know that the covenant of works is still open? What I mean is that the offer of God that uh, based on perfect obedience, a person would be perfectly acceptable. That is still open. That is still true. If a person were perfectly obedient from the moment of birth until the moment of death, he would be perfectly acceptable to God. That is a principle of Scripture that's stated uh, a few times in the Bible. It's a firm belief of human beings that has rooted in our hearts that if a person obeys, they will be accepted by God. In fact, it's so deeply rooted in us because it was the basis of the first relationship with God in which he offered life based on obedience. That's why people today say things like, how could God reject a person like Mahatma Gandhi, that great Hindu leader of the past? How could God reject him? He was such a good man. Well, the reason people say that is they have this sense that goodness would make you acceptable. But the problem with that whole line of reasoning goes back to what Anselm said. Oh, but you don't understand the seriousness of sin. You don't understand what that really means. That it is morally impossible for a person now to live a perfect life. It is morally impossible for a person to obey the commands of God. As negative as that sounds, it's the logic of Scripture that what Adam did in the garden was passed to us by natural generation so that as we stand here today left to ourselves, we are lost. But that moral impossibility is the reality of the gospel. It's why it is not irrational, immoral, or unfair. It does make sense that God would send his only son, a sinless man, to die in the place of sinful people. It brings us to the last thing. It's kind of like the conclusion. If all of this is true, if this premise, Adam representing us, breaking the covenant of works, that stain of sin being passed to us and 
all descendants of Adam so that we are now in a condition of being lost, if that is true, then only a God-man could save us. That's the logic of the gospel. Only a God-man could save us. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't save another person because we have the stain of sin ourselves. So how could we do something for someone else that we had to pay for still for ourselves? We're still under the curse, and the day that you eat it, you will surely die. And that death is ours from the moment of birth, separation from God, and will be ours physically and eternally if it's not changed. But the Bible says, you see, only a Savior who is both human and divine could deal with the human condition. Only a sinless human being who was also eternal God could do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Only a God-man could save us. And that's what we celebrate today. When Jesus came, two things that he did are important. We sometimes miss the first one, but it's regarded in the Scripture as very significant. Um, God sent his eternal son into the world for lost sinners. That means the second person of the Trinity stepped out of eternity and into time, and he assumed a human nature and became the God-man, united in one person. And as the God-man, he went to the cross. But as the God-man, he did two things. The first thing he did was he kept the commands of God perfectly. Being himself a sinless man, through a miraculous virgin birth, he perfectly obeyed God from beginning to end, fulfilling in our place the covenant of works that was broken. He became, as uh, the Apostle Paul says, the second man. The first man being Adam, the first representative and source of humanity. Jesus becomes the second man, the second representative head of a true and redeemed humanity. And then the second place he did was he died on the cross in our place to take the penalty that was ours for our sins. You see, we still have the stain of sin, even though he lived a perfect life and kept the covenant of works. But that qualified him to be the one who would then take upon himself the penalty for sin in our place. And so he died in the place of sinners by becoming our substitute. Only God in the flesh could have done that is what the gospel says. The gospel says because of the reality of sin, the nature of sin, the holiness of God, only a God-man would be sufficient to deal with that. And that's why, despite what's said in that book, it makes perfect sense that a holy God, a loving God, would send his only son, a sinless man, to die for the sins of other people. And it's what sets Jesus apart from all the religions of the world, they all say in various ways, it's unfair for a righteous man to die for the sin of others. Uh, we need to stand on our own. We need to make our way ourselves. God is going to judge us like in a balance based on the things that we do. And oh, says Anselm, you don't understand the seriousness of sin. You don't understand what it means that we violated God's purposes. The whole story of what we do this morning is wrapped up in that. It's wrapped up in the fact that what we are doing, it, it makes the most sense in the world. We come to God, and we even come in the way that Jesus appointed to us, to his table. And here on the table are these elements that he, by his design, uh, makes signs. He said, these are signs of the relationship that I have with you, those of you who are believers, those of you who have trusted in my death on the cross for your sins. 
you take these signs in your hands, and when you take them, the reality of my words are confirmed in a tactile experience. This is my body that was broken for you. This is my blood that was shed for you. And those signs, while they don't change the nature of what they are, they don't become his body and blood, but they become effective pointers to the reality of fellowship with God. That all goes back to what happened in the garden. Father, we thank you that this is true, and we desire that you would, in fact, draw our hearts to you and give to us a ability, an experience of fellowship with you, the enjoyment of knowing that what was done in the garden was undone at the cross, that the life that was lost is restored through the Lord Jesus Christ, that's restored to us only through faith in him and his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Allow us, Father, even today, to understand that more deeply and to experience it more deeply. We pray this in Jesus' name.